0: This is God's word from Psalm 111. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever.
1: Thank you. Morning, Sound City Bible Church. How are we doing today? That's good. As Pastor Shane mentioned, we are in week two of a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. And really thankful to be able to dive into this incredibly important topic learning as people how to pray and not just learning how to pray, but really putting it into practice. And so uh, in addition to the Psalm reading, one of the things that we're doing together every week is is standing and saying the Lord's Prayer together. And so I'm gonna have them put that up on the screen. I'm gonna invite all of you, if you would, to stand, please. Let's begin our time by reading the Lord's Prayer. As I said last week, we're reading from the English Standard Version. If some of you accidentally slip into some King James, this is a judgment-free zone. We love you and uh, it's totally okay that thou are doing that. So uh, let's do this. We'll say the Lord's Prayer all together and then I'll pray and we'll jump into this topic for today. Let's say this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can come before you today and call on you as Father. God, we don't want to take that for granted. We know that we have been invited into the family of God. Those of us who are Christians, we've been invited in by the precious and costly blood of Jesus. And today, Lord God, as we turn our attention to uh, your name being holy and praising you and lifting you up above all else, I pray, God, that you would send your Holy Spirit to even fill our hearts right now with a sense of awe at how great and powerful and holy you are. God, would you guard my lips? Help me to only teach that which is in uh, alignment with your truth and give us all soft and teachable hearts, we pray. We pray all of these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. All right, church, you can be seated. Many of you know, most of you probably know that my wife and I have the same name. My wife's name is also Aaron. Uh, She spells hers E-R-I-N, I I spell mine A-A-R-O-N. They sound the same, I just say mine's biblical and hers is not. So, we, uh, we started dating in high school. We got married shortly after high school. And so we have been dealing with the interesting and complicating factor in our relationship of having the same first name. Uh, I often joke it's that I'm so bad with names, I had to marry a woman with the same name as me just to make sure I would always keep that one straight. Uh, we started having kids. People said, are you gonna name your kids, Aaron? I said, we're well, not sadistic. No, we we just happen to have the same. I actually remember in second grade, there was a girl named Aaron in my class in second grade, a different a different Aaron, and the kids in the class were teasing me. And they were saying, ha, ha, ha. Wouldn't it be funny if you grew up and married a girl named Aaron? You're going to grow up and marry someone named Aaron. I remember in second grade, seven years old, eight years old saying, that's the dumbest thing I have ever heard. That is never going to happen. But God was listening. And he knew exactly what I needed uh, was to marry a woman with the same name as me. You know, our modern attitude toward names is that they don't really have much significance at all. If you pick up a baby book, if, you know, an expectant mother, expectant couple, they pick up a baby book, there are name meanings in there. But most of the people that I know anymore who pick children's names is because they like the way it sounds. Or maybe they like the way it fits together with the last name or with the siblings' names. We don't, in our culture, put very much weight on the meanings of names. But that's kind of a new phenomenon. Did you know that throughout the history of the world... I mean that literally in in virtually every culture in the history of the world, names had incredible meaning. And even in our culture, even in our day, certain names still have meaning or at least the meaning that they used to have is obvious. The most uh, obvious place where you can see this is in people's last names. So if somebody has the last name Baker... That's related to maybe what the family trade used to be 100 or 200 years ago. If somebody has the last name Miller or Brewer or Schumacher, you can see that there are names that have meanings because it's tied to their occupation. But beyond that, we don't really think too much about the meaning of names. It got me thinking this week, I wonder what my fellow elders, my fellow pastors' names mean. And so I just spent a little bit of time Googling this on the internet, so you know it's true. Uh, this, is, this is what I found. So Joe, Pastor Joe, who's here leading music this morning, Joseph, uh, that's a great biblical name, comes straight from the Hebrew, Yosef, which means God will add, what a beautiful meaning, right? God will add, which I guess God was thinking of that when He added to their family twins, so two for one sale, right? When they had their kids, Shane, Pastor Shane, who is just up here doing the welcome. Shane is a uh, Americanized or anglicized version of Sean, which comes from the name John, which also is a biblical name, the Hebrew Yohanan, which means Yahweh is gracious. Oh, isn't that nice? That's just so. These guys are they're so biblical. They're so. Spiritual, man. Travis. Travis, and he's not even in the room right now. He's teaching the baptism class, poor guy. So I'll have to make sure to make this part extra special at the next service. Travis comes from the Anglo-Saxon word traverse and refers to someone who sits at the end of a bridge and collects a toll from people who are going over the bridge. (laughs) So Pastor Travis will be collecting money from you in the lobby on your way out today. In the biblical world, names are incredibly important. Let me read this to you from the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. This is what one scholar says. In contemporary Western culture, a name rarely possesses significance beyond that of a highly sentimental response on the part of proud, doting parents to the intoxicating joy of a new arrival. Not so in the Bible. There, a human name typically reflects character and mission anticipated in life, which may turn out for either good or ill. It may embody the spiritual vision of the parents for their child's future. In other instances, it's prophetic of future outcomes or events. On the negative side, it may typify a life come to ruin. When you read the Bible, the names are incredibly Important, just a couple of brief examples. Adam, Adam, he is, his name literally just means man and he is the father of humanity. He is the covenantal representative that, that sinned, which caused the whole entire human race to fall into sin. His name is Adam, it just means man. Name Jacob means grasper of the heel and it's indicative of his life of, of trying to usurp his place of authority and always trying to get ahead through oftentimes deceptive means. Ruth, one of the most beautiful stories in the entire Bible. Ruth, you know her name means friend or companion. And we see that lived out in her life as she was a close friend and companion to her mother-in-law. Or Joshua, the great leader who took over from Moses, his name means God will save And God used Joshua to lead the Israelites out of the wilderness and into the promised land. And did you know that of all the people in the entire Bible, the one that our Lord and Savior, Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, is named after is Joshua. His name means God will save. In English, those names sound different, but in the original Hebrew, it's the same exact name. In the Bible, names are important. Your name is synonymous with your reputation. What do people think about you? When your name is mentioned, what comes to mind? What are your characteristics? What are your traits? What's your personality? What's your reputation? And there is no name in the Bible that is more important than the name of God. There's no name that is more important than the name of God. Now we're going to come back to that idea in just a moment. I want to take a brief minute and just recap what we covered last week because as we see In the Lord's Prayer, this is a a pattern for prayer. This is not just a poem that Jesus was giving us. He's giving us a pattern of prayer. And the elements of the prayer that Jesus gives to us, they build upon one another. So last week, we talked about our Father in heaven. And we saw that our Father in heaven is really about the doctrine of adoption, that all of us who are, are Christians were at one point alienated and estranged from God. We were orphans, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, we've been adopted into the family of God and we get to now call him father. That's amazing, amen? How many of you felt that there was a difference or a shift even in your own prayer life this last week, just meditating and thinking on that beautiful truth that we don't just come to God as king and master, although he is, we get to come to him as father, So our father in heaven is about the doctrine of adoption. We also saw last week that our father is the starting point for all of our other prayers. We come before God as our father first, before we get to pray anything else. Number three, we saw uh, that it's good for us as part of our prayer life to pray gospel prayers, thanking God for the, the gift of salvation, thanking God for the cross of Jesus, thanking God for adopting us into his family. And then number four, we saw, and I hinted at last week, that when we really understand what it means that God is our father, it should move us into praise and worship and adoration that we we start out with uh, just an amazement that God would adopt us into his family. And then from there, we begin to turn that back to him in praise and worship. I like the way that Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says this, the prayer begins where all true prayer must commence with the spirit of adoption. Our father, There is no acceptable prayer until we can say, I will arise and go unto my Father. Then he says this, this childlike spirit soon perceives the grandeur of the Father in heaven and ascends to devout adoration. Hallowed be thy name. The child lisping Abba Father grows into the cherub crying, holy, 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 like the song we just sang a minute ago. We start out, in this precious closeness of relationship with God. And from that, we get a picture of who he is and how amazing he is, and we begin to worship. As we move into this next phrase, also the the, hallowed be your name, it's really important to note that God doesn't want our prayers to be selfish or self-seeking, right? We identified this last week that for some of us, our prayer life suffers because pretty much all we do is come to God, help me, bless me, fix me. We're very selfish in our prayers, right? Or is that just me? Some of us struggle. We can be honest here. This is a safe place. Some of us struggle with that. God wants to hear our requests. Don't get me wrong. But before we can go before God with a right heart, it starts with that spirit, that heart of adoption, and then it goes into a heart of praise and worship. Before we ever get to requests, God doesn't want us to be selfish in our prayer life. I like how John MacArthur puts it in one of the books that we're uh, recommending for this sermon series called Alone with God. He writes this, even though he is our loving father who desires to meet our needs through his heavenly resources, our first petition is not for our benefit, but for his Thus, hallowed be thy name is a warning against self-seeking prayer because it completely encompasses God's nature and man's response to it. Jesus wasn't reciting some nice words about God. Instead, he opened a whole dimension of respect, reverence, glory, and worship for God. Church, it's about God and his glory first and foremost. Amen? We want our hearts to be aligned in putting him first, putting his glory first before we move into our petitions, before we move into our requests. And so that's really what today is all about, praising him. So as we look at this next section, I think there are some important questions that we need to ask and some important questions that we need to answer. The first one is this, what does hallowed be your name even mean? It's kind of an old fashioned phrase, not one that we use very often. Let's talk about this. The word hallowed, you're probably the most familiar with it from uh, the, the holiday Halloween. That's part of that word, Hallows Eve, Halloween. Hallowed simply means holy. And when we say hallowed be your name, we're saying, God, your name is holy. We're regarding God. We're thinking of God as holy. It's important to note when we say hallowed be your name, we are not saying, God, I just made your name Holy. Thank me, right? We're not saying that at all. We're saying, God, I am recognizing and admitting that your name is holy. Who you are is holy. Holiness is one of those terms that can be a little bit hard to grasp at times. It's, it's understandable, but it's also elusive. How many of you would say, yeah, I, I have a fuzzy idea of what holiness means, right? It's, it's not the clearest term in the Bible, Holiness is defined by what God is. God is holy. So if something is holy, it means it's made more like God or it's made closer to God. It's set apart. It's different. When we say that God is holy, we mean that there's nothing imperfect or unclean in him at all. Did you know that God does no wrong? God is perfect in all of his ways. God is perfectly wise. God is perfectly just. God is perfectly loving. God is perfectly merciful. God is perfectly righteous. God is holy. And God is holy unlike anything else that there is. God is different. We can look at things in creation. We can look at a, a powerful waterfall. and We can say, yeah, that waterfall is powerful like God, but God's power is just on a whole different level. God is Unlike anything else that we can see, anything else that we can feel or touch or taste or even imagine, God is beyond all of that. God is holy. We serve a holy God, amen? For us, when we hallow something, when we give that um, holiness, ascribe holiness to something, you know what it means for us? It means that we value it above anything else. It means that we say, this is of utmost importance. There's nothing more valuable than this. So when we say God, hallowed be your name. God, holy is your name. What we are saying is there is nothing in all of creation. There is nothing I can see. There's nothing I can own. There's nothing I can experience or feel that is more beautiful or precious than God himself. God is of the greatest value. Think about that in your life. Jesus even would tell parables. You know, what is it that you would sell everything you had to get? What is it that that would, would do that for you? Maybe uh, you know, for some of you musicians, there's this magical guitar that if you could just get the magical guitar, you'd sell everything. Maybe for some of you, it's a, a home. You want a a particular dream home. Maybe for some of you, it's a relationship. If I could just have this relationship that I want, what is it in your life that? tends to rise to the ultimate importance for you, the supreme place of value in your heart. The Bible teaches that that place in our heart should be held by none other than God himself. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're saying, God, your name is valuable. And I want to keep you in the number one place in my heart. I want you to rise above anything and everything else that I could treasure or love. Second thing I want you to see about calling God's name holy is that God's name reveals his character. Remember what I said earlier about names having meaning? Well, when we say God's name is holy, we're talking about who God is. We're talking about his character if you go back into the book of Exodus and it's right near the beginning of the Bible, God calls a man named Moses to be a leader for his people. He calls Moses and he says, I need you to go to the Pharaoh. I need you to tell him that his days are numbered. All of the the Israelite slaves, they're going to be set free. And I want you to go speak to the people of Israel that hope is coming, that freedom is coming, that redemption is coming. And Moses has a little bit of an argument with God. He was stuttering. God had to ask him a few times, what'd you say? It was a, it was a long conversation. But finally, Moses says, God, who should I tell them sent me? Who, who am I coming? Whose name am I coming in? Because when a leader comes, they come in the name of something else. Like when a police officer pulls you over, they pull you over in the name of the law, in the name of the, the law of the state of Washington. Not that you'd ever get pulled over. You're much holier than that, I'm sure. <clears throat> Moses says, who should I say sent me? And God simply says, Tell them, I am who I am. <sighs> Moses' mind just exploded. What kind of a name for a god is that? I thought, you know, most of the gods in, in Egypt, they were the god of rain or the god of fertility or the god of grain or the god of the sun or they had a frog god and they had a cow god. They had all sorts of gods. No, God says, I, I just am. I am God. Let's try to figure that one out. I am God. Who I am. You know, in our lives, we are dependent on so many things to exist. If we don't have air, if we don't have water, if we don't have sunlight, if we don't have shelter, we cease to exist. God exists completely in and of himself. In him is all life. God is who he is. God will be who he will be. There is no beginning, there is no end. God is utterly eternal, utterly unique. That name of God, uh, over time, grows and becomes uh, Yahweh. They call God Yahweh, and actually... uh, within a relatively brief amount of time, the people of Israel wouldn't even say the name of God, Yahweh, because of that one uh, in the 10 commandments that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. They revered his name so much as holy that they even stopped saying it, which I think is a little bit counterproductive to what God was wanting from them. But that's how seriously they took God's name. I don't even want to say it in case I might say his name wrongly. There's a a verse in Exodus 34, if you fast forward a number of years, there's a a moment where God and Moses are having another interaction and Moses has asked God to just show himself. And God says, well, I can't because you'll die, but let me show you part of myself. And this is just a a selection from that. This is what God says to Moses. says, God descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God proclaims his own name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God declares all of his attributes and he is forgiving and loving and gracious and showing love to thousands of generations, but he is also just and righteous and he will hold the guilty accountable. What's Moses' reaction? The right one. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Got that one right, Moses. Good job. God's name is equivalent to his character and God's character is holy, loving, righteous, just, merciful, forgiving. That's who our God is. So when we speak of God's name, we speak of his character. The third thing I want us to understand about God's name being holy is this. God's name is synonymous with his presence. This is a little bit of, a, of an interesting point to try to draw out. But here, let me explain it to you this way. When we speak about famous people, for most of us, we don't have any expectation of, of knowing them personally. We can speak about, let's say, the president. We can speak about President Obama in a certain way. We talk about him like we know him, but we, we don't really speak of him like he's there in the room. And especially some of you, I've heard the way you talk about it, Right. When we speak about a famous historical figure, even let's even say uh, somebody like Martin Luther King Jr., somebody who is almost universally loved and admired. We speak about these people in a way that understands that there's some distance. They're out there somewhere. In the case of Martin Luther King Jr., he's dead. He has passed away. So we speak of him kind of in a past tense. But when we speak God's name, when we speak of God's character, God is alive and God is Active and God is present. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? God is not a historical figure who is far off, distant, uninvolved. God is with us. That's what the name Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us means, that God is not a God who is far off and aloof and distracted and distant. I am convinced that that is one of the most convincing lies that the devil has told to the people in Western uh, civilization, in the United States in particular, sure, there's a God, but he's distant, far off and not really active and involved in our lives. No, the word of God says the exact opposite, that God is present in the lives of his people. And when we speak of God's name, we speak of his presence. This passage in number six summarizes it nicely. It says this, again, another conversation between the Lord and Moses. Man, Moses had some great chats with the Lord. They didn't always go well, but oh, to have those face-to-face conversations that Moses did with God. And guess what? One day, all who trust in Christ Jesus will have even closer face-to-face conversations with our God than Moses did. That's free of charge. not even in my notes. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, that's the priests, the people who are in charge of the worship, and say this, this is how you're going to bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Listen to this. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So there, The name of God is with you. The name of God is on you. The name of God empowers you for a life of peace, a life of God's grace, a life of his countenance, giving you joy. When we regard God's name as holy, we are saying that he is more valuable than anything else. We're saying that he is a God whose character is perfect. And we're saying that he's a God who is with us. When you say, hallowed be your name, that's what it means. That's what you're saying. Now, if that's what hallowing God's name means, we need to look at the opposite. What does it mean to profane God's name? Profaning God's name uh, or taking God's name in vain is a very serious concern in the Bible. There's two main ways that God's name is profaned. The first way is this, is with our words. When people tear down God, when people speak ill of God, when people speak things that are not true about God, that is profaning his name. When we misrepresent God's character with our words. I'll, I want to read you a quote before I put it up on the screen. I want to warn you, this is an extreme example, okay? This is an extreme example. I want you to hear someone actively, passionately profaning the name of God and selling millions of copies of books while doing it. This is from an author uh, named Christopher Hitchens. He is part of what's called the New Atheist Movement, and he passed away about four years ago. This is what he says. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, that means killing your own child, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. Christopher Hitchens died four years ago, and he stood before God and had to give an account for those words that he wrote. Now, there are two reactions happening right now in this room. One is, for those of you who are Christians and revere God's name, there's a, a reaction of shock, right? Anybody feeling that reaction of shock? Show of hands, right? Oh, I can't believe you would say that. I would, I would be willing to bet that there are some of you that are also having a reaction of relief, like, whew, at least I've never profaned God's name like that. <laughs> <laughs> off the hook. Whew, sweet. Okay, before I let you off the hook that easily... <laughs> Let me say, I I said, this is an extreme example. This is someone who made it their life's mission to profane the name of God. You you compare this list that he writes versus the list that God spoke to Moses. God says, I am a God, loving, gracious, full of compassion, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And he says, no, he's not. He's an unforgiving control freak. Either God's lying or Christopher Hitchens is wrong. However, let me say to you, especially to those of you who are Christians, we may not say, these things. But there are ways with our words that we malign the character of God and we do on occasion profane his name. Uh, this is another extreme example, but I'll share it with you because one time, I, I believe it was middle school, it may have been high school, but middle school, uh, a somewhat well-known traveling Bible teacher, preacher sort of guy came into town and he gave a, a talk and the whole talk was um, kind of one of those standard health and wealth, God always wants you to be healthy, God always wants you to be wealthy sort of talks. And in there, I won't be able to quote it verbatim, but it was the point when I stood up and left because he said, I believe that God wants every Christian to have their own private jet. And I thought, I need to leave. (laughs) I need to go jet shopping. No, I didn't say that. That was a so-called Christian Bible teacher misrepresenting God with his words. God has all of the riches in heaven and earth. In Christ Jesus, we have the very treasures of heaven. Whether or not you have a private jet or whether or not you uh, use the bathroom in an outhouse for this life, doesn't matter. You're gonna spend eternity with God in the riches of heaven, feasting in the presence of the Son of God, celebrating for all of eternity. We don't wanna misrepresent God's character, right? Some of us do so carelessly. Some of us need to learn the character of God. Some of us need to learn more about what God is like and not speak so boldly about things that we don't know. We don't want to profane God's name with our words. Another way that we profane God's name is with our lifestyle, See, the whole Old Testament is this, it's this long list of person after person after person who was given a job to be a blessing to the people around them, to represent God, to, to live a life that's pleasing to God. But person after person after person fails miserably. They do not display God's character. They do not display God's glory. They do not display God's name as they should. And then Jesus, the the central figure of the entire Bible, he shows up on the scene and you know what he does? He lives a perfect life. He never sins. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter one that he is the exact radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus stood up and said, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. That Jesus displayed the character, the name, the nature of God perfectly. No flaws, no sin. He lived his life in such a way that God's name was perfectly hallowed. Now listen, you and I as Christians, what are we called to with our lives? We are called to live a God-honoring, Christ-honoring life. But if we're honest, we all fall short in many ways. Now, please hear me out. I am never advocating for some sort of a legalistic approach to the Christian life. God knows that we all have fallen short of the glory of God. God knows that even after we become Christians, we all stumble in many ways. But I do want to ask you, is your life growing in holiness? Does your lifestyle look more like God's character today than it did a year ago? Legalism says, oh, I've got to work really hard and act really good so that God will love me and accept me. No, 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 no. A son or a daughter has a heart of obedience. I have been adopted. I have been loved. I have been forgiven. How could I want to do things that displease my father who has loved me so much? Do you see the difference? One of it is a motivation of fear. I hope I am good enough for God. The other one is I am so ridiculously loved. I want to do that, which is pleasing to my heavenly father. I do not want anyone in this room listening to my voice to fall into shame or condemnation, I want you to know that all of our sins, past, present, and future have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you're a Christian, your sins are washed away, you're forgiven, it's good news. But when we truly understand the great cost of Jesus' blood, if we truly understood what it meant to receive grace and mercy and forgiveness, we would not be careless with our lifestyle, amen? But we would seek to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to God. I have to thread this needle because some of you are like, yeah, get them. There's bad people in my community group and they need to live holier. Like, no, okay, stop. Right? My spouse, we need to really fix them up, right? But we are talking about a life of Christ-honoring obedience that overflows from a heart of knowing how loved you are by your heavenly father. This is what, by the way, this is what all of this means, uh, In the Ten Commandments, when it says, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, it's not primarily referring to the phrase, oh my God. Uh, We can have a conversation about how polite or impolite or reverent that phrase is, but primarily what that commandment is saying is, with your words and with your lifestyle, do you honor God for who he is? And do you show his character, his nature to the watching world? That's what the commandment is about. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not profane God's name with your words or with your lifestyle. So now, now that the intro's done, I got 10 minutes left. Let's get into the meat of this sermon here. Here's what it means. I want to talk to us now about, okay, really practically praising God's name. I want to talk about praising God's name. The first thing I want you to know is this. Everything in all of human existence is for God's glory, Every single thing that you see, everything that you experience, everything you feel, touch, taste, or smell is meant to give glory and praise and honor and worship and adoration to our God. A little earlier when Pastor Shane uh, opened up the service, he said that our mission statement as a church is to glorify God by proclaiming Jesus, receiving grace, being disciples and making disciples. And that first piece is really the, the mission statement. The mission statement is to glorify God. And those other pieces flow out of this This is how we're going to do it. Our church exists for the glory of God to point to how amazing he is, how valuable he is, how beautiful he is, how worthy he is. That's what our church exists for. So that's the first thing I want you to understand is everything exists for God's glory. It's not about you. Don't make it about you. Don't make this church about you. Don't make your community group about you. Don't make your job about you. Don't make your spouse about you. Don't make your very life about you. All of those things are for God and for his glory. And you'll be way happier the sooner you understand that because you won't be grasping for your own glory. You'll seek to live for God's glory. And there's a lot of guilt that comes from being a glory thief. So you want to be free, start living for God's glory. The second thing I want you to see is that in the Psalms in particular, we start to see this pattern emerge of how we should praise God. Let's go back to the Psalm uh, that Marcia just read a little bit earlier in the service. Psalm 111. It says this, uh, just a couple of the verses. It says, full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous, what is it? Works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. And just by way of reinforcement, I threw a a verse from Psalm 150, one of my favorite psalms up there, so you could see this pattern emerge again. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Now here it is. Praise him for his mighty deeds and... Praise him according to his excellent greatness. We see a pattern emerge in the scriptures, in the Psalms in particular, that we are to praise God's name both for what he has done, his works or his deeds, and we're to praise him for who he is at his core. Let's talk about praising God for his works. Now, God's works are so many. They're so manifold that uh, we could never literally in all of eternity, adequately list and praise God for all of the things he has done. The apostle John writes that if all the things that Jesus had done or said were written down, there wouldn't be a book big enough in the world to contain all of it. So we know that we can't adequately praise God for all of his works, but we can, again, in the Bible, see this pattern emerging of two primary works that God has done that are praiseworthy. And those two works are creation and redemption. These are the two major works that God has done. Read this to you from Psalm 148 on creation. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Uh, Just last week, my family, uh, we took a trip down to Long Beach, Washington, right on the the entrance of the Columbia River into the ocean. And we went to the beach and the waves were so powerful. There's signs out there saying, please don't swim. These waves will literally uh, kill you and drag you away. And I'm standing there because, you know, we get used to seeing the the Puget Sound, but there's ocean there, but then there's uh, mountains on the other side and islands on the other side. This is the type of ocean where you look over the ocean and there's just ocean. There's no land Ho! it's just ocean. And you start to get a little bit of a sense of, oh, this thing is way bigger than I remembered. And you start to feel smaller and, and a little bit insignificant. And it's in moments like that where you're uh, invited as a Christian to begin to praise God. How many gallons of water are in that ocean? How many gallons of water are crashing down on this beach every single hour? This is just one beach in one tiny part of the world. God's work of creation is astounding. Amen? His work of creation is astounding. We can't even, with all of the money in the world, all the scientists in the world, we can't even barely scratch the surface of what we know about God's manifold work of creation. And let me say this, God's work of creation didn't just end in Genesis chapters one and two. God's work of creation includes his sustaining, the ongoing work of creation. It says also in Hebrews one, you can tell I've been reading Hebrews. I'm ready to go for next month too. Hebrews says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That means that The days are getting shorter now, sorry to depress you, uh, and the, the fall is on its way because God is still speaking that the world needs to go around the sun. And today, the sun will go down and the tides will come in and out because God is upholding the universe by the word of his power. The doctrine of creation, praising God for creation, also includes things like common grace. The Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, that there are benefits and blessings to enjoy in God's good creation, whether you're a Christian or not. Non-Christians can enjoy a delicious steak. Non-Christians can enjoy a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise. Non-Christians can enjoy music or art or poetry or the pleasure of of sex or a comfortable bed or uh, all sorts of things that we enjoy. But all of that is tied to God's manifold wisdom in creation. God is the creator, the sustainer, the upholder of the whole universe. He deserves to be praised for his act of creation. Amen? But as great as creation is, the scriptures would speak of the work of redemption as even greater, even more dazzling, even more profound, even before the world was formed. I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter one, one of those passages where uh, the apostle Paul kind of loses his mind a little bit. You could close your eyes if you want to for this. This isn't even like a read along. I want you to hear, this is by the way, this is a prayer, Ephesians one, three through uh, 10. This is a prayer that the apostle Paul is praying in which he is praising God for the work of redemption. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Do you hear that? Before the foundation of the world, before God did his work of creation, he had the plan of redemption in mind. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. There it is from last week. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul says the whole thing is so that we might praise him for his glorious grace. Which with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. You know what's amazing? Even though each and every single one of us are profaners of God's name, God can count us holy and righteous and blameless before him because of what Jesus did on the cross. When God looks at us, when God looks at you, those of you who have received Christ as your savior, those of you who have bowed your knee and said, you are my Lord, God looks at you not as a profaner. He looks at you as though you were as holy and blameless and righteous as Jesus Christ himself. Because God doesn't love a future cleaned up version of you. He loves you right now. And he sent his son to die on the cross to cover all of the sins. And guess what? God's eternal, which means he knows about sins that you haven't even committed yet. And Jesus is not sitting there in heaven, calling the Trinity together in emergency council, saying, whoa, I didn't know he was gonna do that when I went to the cross for his sins. God knows about all of your sins, past, present, future, and they are covered by the blood of Jesus. And you are redeemed. For those of you who are not Christians, There's an invitation to receive forgiveness for all of your sins, for all of the ways that you have profaned God's name with your words and with your lifestyle. Come and receive God's grace. It's amazing. God's work of redemption is even greater than his work of creation. We praise God for his works. We praise him for creation. We praise him for redemption, but we don't want to just stop there, right? We don't just want to praise God for the awesome things he does for us because again, we tend to be such selfish creatures that we could just turn that back around and make it all about ourselves again. I don't know how we make the work of creation and redemption about us, but we can. We're just that creative in our fallen humanity. We want to move to an even deeper place in which we praise God for his character. We praise God for his nature. And I'll just briefly touch on this because uh, this is a huge area of study, but when we praise God for his character, we're praising God for his attributes. We're praising God for who he is. And I just wanna say that there are um, ways that theologians, Bible scholars, Bible teachers have spoken about God's attributes kind of in two categories. There's the communicable attributes, the ones that he shares with us. And then there are his non-communicable attributes or his incommunicable attributes, the ones that he does not share with us. So just by way of a quick uh, lightning round, what are some of the attributes of God that he shares with us? Things that are true about God that can also be true about us. I'll give you, I'll give you two. One is uh, knowledge. God is a knowledgeable God and we can have knowledge as image bearers and God is loving. And we as human beings, image bearers can be loving. Shout it out. Just give me a couple. Forgiving. Okay, good. What else? Long suffering. Hopefully, right? Some of us less than others. Patient what? Unchanging? Unchanging? Yeah. I, well, maybe. That might go more in the category of his non-communicable because I do unfortunately change, but God is rock solid study, which is good news, right? Couple more. What are some of the attributes of God? All sufficient. All sufficient. Yeah. I would say that would go in the non-communicable attributes because I am insufficient. You've all gotten that notice at the ATM, right? Insufficient funds. Oh. Huh? More than once. More than once? Yeah. <laughs> We'll have a budget class starting soon, bro. (laughs) Yeah. God is generous. That's a communicable attribute he shares with us. There are things like his justice, his wisdom, his mercy, compassion, benevolence, creativity. Creativity is an attribute of God that he shares with us. Some of the non-communicable attributes that he does not share with us are things like aseity that I mentioned earlier, that God has all life in himself. He is dependent on no one. God is eternal. Look, those of us who are Christians, we're going to live forever, but we still have a starting point. God has no beginning. God has no end. He is eternal. Uh, Let that blow your mind this afternoon. All knowing. God knows all. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all places at all times. And God is immutable. He never changes. So I encourage you when you pray, In your personal time, when you pray in groups, spend time praising God for who he is and for what he has done. His attributes and his works of creation and redemption. Now I want to wrap this up, talk about kind of putting it into practice in our lives. And I want to start wrapping it up by putting before you a quote that I came across from J.I. Packer a few months ago. And it says this, petition exhausts, praise invigorates. Petition exhausts, Praise invigorates. What does that mean? Like I said, some of you probably suffer in your prayer life because the bulk of your prayer life is requests: "Help me, fix me." And again, we're going to spend multiple weeks talking about petitions and requests. So God does not oppose them. We're commanded in the Book of Philippians to bring all of our requests to God. So we're we're going to get to requests. But I can't help but think that when we pray predominantly prayers of requests, that we're on a road to weariness and tiredness and burnout. Would you agree? Think about this. When you're doing nothing but praying requests, when you're making petitions, what are your eyes focused on? Maybe self, but maybe even uh, if I was a little bit more positive, how about we just say the problems, you're either focused on yourself or even you're just focused on the problems. How encouraging is that? Oh God, I need help with health or my cousin has cancer or this situation is going down the drain. I need help. I mean, we're, we're so focused on everything that's wrong and we're focused on everything that's relatively uncertain. But when we, as one of my pastor friends said, raise our gaze and look upon the God who is unchanging and who is always perfect and always loving, how can that not help but invigorate us? How can that not transform our heart into a, from being a weary heart into being an invigorated heart? Amen. I want you to have joy and vigor and excitement in your prayer life. And I would submit to you that the starting point is praising God because God's works and God's character will never, can never change. The work of creation, the work of redemption, it's a done deal. There's nothing that you and I are going to do this afternoon that's going to mess that up. Praise Him for it. Praise Him for who He is. I think about some of the stories in the Bible. You guys remember the story of Daniel? He gets thrown into the lion's den. He's going to be eaten by lions. And the, the king is stressed out, doesn't sleep a wink that night, comes running first thing in the morning. Daniel, Daniel, are you okay? And Daniel says, yeah, I'm totally fine. The Lord sent an angel. He shut the the mouth of the lion, I'm okay. Now, if it was you or if it was I in that lion's den overnight, what would we probably be praying? God, strike this lion dead. God, shut this lion up. God, make its teeth, help it to have gum disease. Maybe it likes candy way too much and all its teeth just fell out, right? I would be petitioning God all night long. Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. Interesting note in Daniel chapter six, verse 23, it says, Daniel was taken out of the den. No no kind of harm was found on him. Why? Because he had trusted in his God. It means he knew who his God was and he was just trusting in him. I think of his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're gonna get thrown into the fiery furnace. The heat's getting cranked way up. And they say to the king, they said, look, king, Our God has the power to save us, but even if he doesn't, we aren't gonna bow down to your stinking statue. Because as impressive as a 90 foot tall gold statue is, it is nowhere near as impressive as the God who created the universe. Think of Job. Job had three financial, economic, business disasters and a family disaster all in one day. His business was ruined and his family was decimated all in one day. And Job's reaction His first reaction was not to jump up and start praying, God, would you restore to me what the enemy's taken? God, would you fix these things? God, would you get back those bad guys that came and attacked my servants and stole my sheep? No, it says that he rose, he tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The Bible tells us Job did the right thing. Or Paul and Silas in prison, they're thrown in jail for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love the story. What do they do? They start singing. They start throwing a, a hallelujah hoot-nanny in the Philippian jail, right? And, you know, again... If it was me, just being honest, I'd be like, God, this is terrible. Will you please fix me? Will you please send something? And they just start praising God. And yes, God redeemed them and God delivered them and started a revival in Philippi and a church was planted out of that. Praising is an act of trust because it says, yes, God, these circumstances are terrible, but I trust that you are even better in my life. Praising takes faith. And it takes a vision of who God is. I just wondered, what if we responded with praise before requests? Second thing I wanna encourage you in putting this into practice is to stand in awe of God. Some of you need to recapture a sense of the awe and the majesty and the grandeur of God. Some of you literally need to go spend some time in nature being reminded of how small and insignificant we really are. Uh, What is man that you are mindful of him like the psalmist writes. Some of you need to recapture that sense of of God's awe. And and, and for some of you, it means means that you need to break your infatuation with some of your diversions and your toys and your trinkets that have your attention all captivated right now. Some of you are missing out on a filet mignon meal because you're too busy eating Doritos, right? That's an analogy. I don't see anybody eating Doritos right now. I mean, you're, you're invited to enjoy the greatness of God. You're like, sorry, I've got, you know, 17 more episodes to catch up on, whatever it may be. Number three, I encourage you to pray in your prayer, prayers of worship and adoration. Praise him for his attributes. Praise him for his works of creation and redemption. And let the scripture be your guide. Some of you don't know how to praise God. Look to the scriptures. Look to the Psalms in particular. Look to the letters of Paul. The way that he, like I just said, this this whole beginning of the chapter of, of Ephesians, first chapter of Ephesians is a big prayer. And then lastly, number four, I encourage you to live for God's glory. Living in obedience. Again, not not legalism, not fear, joyful obedience. Seeking to have your life conformed more to the image of Christ each day. And then living in repentance. When you fail, when you fall short again because you're not yet perfected, repenting. Don't let repentance be a bad word in your life or in your household. Let repentance be the joy that it is. And... Rejoicing, because God is not after your begrudging submission. God came to give us in Christ life and life to the full. So we ought to party, church. We've been given grace. We've been given the access to the very throne room of God. We ought to rejoice that when we do fail and we do repent, that God meets us in his grace. What a, what a great thing to be joyful about, amen? That's, that's living for God's glory. I put that before you this week as ways to put this into practice. If you're not a Christian, we love you. We want to invite you into this relationship of grace and mercy and forgiveness found only in Jesus Christ. I want to invite all of us now into a time of response. We're going to respond as we do uh, in a couple of ways. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. God does not need our money. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? But this is a way in which you can praise and worship God through the finances that he has entrusted to you. It ain't your money, it's God's money. And we as a church, if you're a guest, we don't want to arm twist you or beg you to give or anything. You're welcome to, but you're not obligated to. If you're a member or a part of this church, I encourage you to worship God in this way. This is a great way to worship. So if the financial stewards would please uh, collect the offering. Uh, There's information on your Connect card if you wanna give online or if you want to text to give as well. And while they're doing that, let me go over a few discussion questions, things for us to talk about this week in our community groups and in our homes. First question is just talk about holiness. What does it mean that God is holy? Some of us need to recapture the right definition. Number two, what does it mean to honor God's name as holy? And what are some of the ways that we do not honor God's name as holy? We can be vulnerable. Number three, how are Christians made holy? This is an amazing one. This is about talking about the gospel. How can God consider us holy even though we fall short in so many ways? And then number four, I really want you to to consider this phrase, while petition exhausts, praise invigorates. Consider that phrase from J.I. Packer. Why is praise and adoration such an important part in the life of a Christian? And do you find, be honest, that your prayers tend to be more focused on praises or petitions? In addition to the discussion questions, we also have prayer questions, prayer uh, points for you to to pray about this week in community group. And if you are a community group leader or part of a community group, I would encourage you, please take extra time this week to spend time praying and specifically praising God. But let me put these before you here. Uh, Some of these are specific for us as a church community, ways that we can grow. Pray that our lives individually and our church collectively would be for the glory of God, not about ourselves, but about him and his glory. Number two, pray that we would see things about God and his gospel that would cause our hearts to worship. Again, some of you need to be awed by God. Number three, just spend time straight up praising God for who he is and what he's done. If you've got community group coming up in a couple of days, find some verses that you might wanna pray and, and to use those as a launching pad for you to begin to praise God for who he is and what he's done. And then number four, pray that we would all individually as disciples, but corporately as a church grow in our ability to display God's glory to the world, particularly those who do not know Jesus. We're also gonna respond with a celebration of the Lord's table. This is where we take the bread, we dip it into the wine or the juice, and we remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out that we might be forgiven. This is an act of worship, but this is also an act that God ministers his grace to us. If you are a guest If you're a Christian, you're welcome to join us. We practice an open table. If you are not a Christian, please give your sin to Jesus. Receive his grace and join us at the table for the first time. And Pastor Joe is going to lead us in in singing. We're going to sing praises to God about his greatness and his holiness. But before we do either of those things, if you missed last week, sorry, I sprung it on you here this week, we're going to take time and pray right now in service. Before we move on, before we jump up and grab our our bread and our wine and start singing. We're going to take time to pray. Here's, let me just give you some, some maybe ground rules. You are welcome not to pray, okay? If you are not a Christian or maybe you're uncomfortable praying, you're welcome to just sit and observe or think or reflect. You're welcome to pray individually on your own. However, if I could encourage you to gather with somebody nearby Uh, Maybe you've got some friends, family, people from community group. Maybe you're an extrovert. You notice someone sitting kind of by themselves. Be gentle, but go invite them to maybe join your your, your time of prayer. And we're going to take about three minutes, four minutes right now, and we're going to leave these prayer points up on the screen, and we're going to take some time together, and we're going to put into practice what we just talked about because what good is it to learn how to pray if we don't actually do it? Amen? So I invite you now, on the count of three, I'm going to turn you loose into your prayer groups for about three minutes, and then I'll gather us back together when we're done. You ready? Look around, the introverts are
0: getting a little nervous right now, it's good. All right, here we go, one, two, three, let's pray.